0: I'm so glad that we are able to join with you tonight. I would just ask that before uh, we move any farther, you please open your Bibles to the book of Nahum, where we will be this evening. And then before we dive into the Word, we have a couple of matters of business to deal with, three in particular. Uh, First, I would like to introduce you to the newest member of our family. Uh, Up here on the screen, you'll see the first photo there should be uh, the first. There we go. This is... uh, This is Augustine Ella Bunch, and if you go to the next photo, she is named after this guy here. His name is Augustine of Hippo, very important theologian. And then if you go to the next one there, um, this stuffed animal is Hippo of Augustine. (laughs) I'm glad she gets to meet you tonight. Secondly, I would like to first address our uh, Gateway members who are present with us tonight. There's something I want you to know. Uh, Let's export... Uh, The singing that we heard tonight back to our church, was that not glorious? Thank you North Shore for letting us join you and to worship the Lord in that way. That is always so sweet and such a blessing. And also Gateway, I want you to know that if there has ever been anything from my ministry that has been a blessing to you, the Lord has in part given that to me through the teaching and training and mentoring of the pastor of this church, Ed Moore. If you've ever been blessed through my parenting of my children or the way that I love my wife or the way that I pastor the church, I learned those things from Ed. So thank you, Ed, for that. Thirdly, um, I just want to share with you that long before millennials in the tech sector discovered that they could uh, jump from job to job, that art had already been perfected by pastors. I have had conversations when I was in seminary with fellow students who would speak to one another and to speak to me about desiring to have a starter church, is what they called it, where they would go and they would kind of figure out how to be a pastor. And then after a few years, they would jump ship to a larger church that could perhaps pay them more. They would talk about their church opportunities in terms of building a resume. Sadly, this is particularly true of highly gifted pastors who start out in small or relatively unknown churches. The grass is always greener. Well, Ed, I am incredibly thankful that God allowed you to come here and serve this church for 30 years. And I'm thankful that God allowed you to be my pastor for one-sixth of that time. And I'm also thankful that for almost half of that time, you've been one of my very best friends. Uh, Church, uh, I want you to know that you don't just have a good preacher here at North Shore Baptist. Uh, Take it from me. uh, I am someone who has listened to thousands of sermons from literally hundreds of different pastors. It's one of my favorite pastimes. And I will tell you, that I have never heard a better preacher in all of my life. He is my favorite preacher of the word. And more than that, you have, as a leader here in your church, one of the most influential men in one of the most influential cities in the world in terms of the kingdom of God. And what's amazing about your pastor is not only will he be denying that right now, he wouldn't care if that it is true. He doesn't care about prestige, he doesn't care about earthly honors, and that is a form of humility that is incredibly rare. He has committed his life's work to putting his hand to the plow here at North Shore Baptist Church and not looking back. And what is greater is that your pastor is truly one of the very best Christians that I have ever known. And everyone here loves you. I love you. Happy 30 years. But I also think it's fair. Yeah, go. Thank you. I also think it's fair that at this point I share with everyone your two secrets of how you've survived so long in ministry. Uh, First, and and most significantly, Anna Moore, is how you have survived. (laughs) Praise God for that. And secondly, the secret sauce that makes this church go that very few people from the outside would realize is Jerry Renee, who folds the bulletins and sharpens the pencils. So with all that said, let's turn our attention now fully to the Word of God. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, I am so grateful. I am grateful for the way that you have blessed this local congregation with a pastor who loves to preach the gospel and with a people who loves to hear the gospel and a people that puts the Word of God into practice in their lives. God, I pray that tonight would be no different, that the preaching of the Word of God tonight would go forth And that by the Holy Spirit, it would be applied to the hearts and acted out in the lives of the people. I pray, God, that this would be something that would help to bring understanding and clarity to a book of the Bible, which is often overlooked. And God, I ask that tonight we would have so much love for Jesus Christ because of the incredibly good news found in the book of Nahum. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If I had to guess, I would bet that most people in this room could not give a very long answer to the question, What is the book of Nahum all about? Well, let me help you out with that. They say that imitation is one of the greatest forms of compliment. So here we go. The point of the Bible is Jesus. The point of the minor prophets is that Jesus is coming to succeed in every way that the Israelites had failed. And the point of Nahum is that Jesus will not let the guilty go unpunished. Now, in order to truly understand the book of Nahum, we actually have to rewind in our Bibles a little bit back to Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. If we don't understand what is being said there, we will never have hope of understanding Nahum. This is one of the most significant moments in all of history. This is the moment that the Lord reveals to Moses the nature and character of God with power and with clarity. It says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. This would have been one of those passages that every good Jewish child would have memorized. So now if we flash forward a few hundred years, you're going to consider one of those children who would have grown up knowing these words. You just heard a couple of weeks ago preached by Brian Kill, the book of Jonah. Do you remember the point of that book? The point of Exodus 34, verse 6, is also the point of Jonah. Why did Jonah run from God? It's not because he was afraid of the Assyrians. It was because he knew Exodus 34, verse 6. He says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why? For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He knew Exodus 34 verse 6. The point of Jonah is that God is gracious and merciful and abounding in steadfast love in ways that you and I would never be. But you might notice that Jonah doesn't quote verse 7 about God's judgment on the guilty. So what happened to the Assyrians? Assyrians. Well, they heard the word of the Lord and they repented and Jonah preached it and it brought about some sort of revival there in the land and the Lord did not destroy them. Now, 120 years later, the prophet Nahum is going to write about that very same nation. In fact, that very same city where Jonah went as a missionary. But this time, the message is very different. Nahum chapter one, verses one through three, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. The point of Nahum is that Jesus will not let the guilty go unpunished. This book serves as the epilogue of Jonah. This is the aftermath of the story. So these two books work together to give us a really strong sense of what the Lord is doing in the midst of this once powerful nation called Assyria. However, I want you to notice a very important contrast about these two books, Jonah and Nahum, before we move forward. Jonah was sent to Nineveh. He was told to go there and to tell the Assyrians about what God was going to do so that it would bring about revival. Jonah was given a a message to carry to them, but now, 120 years l- later, the Lord is going to give a prophecy about them and deliver it not to the Assyrians, but to the Israelites. There is no indication that the Assyrians ever know about this prophecy. We are never told that they are given this message or warned about their impending judgment. This was a message from God about them, but not to them. Whereas the message to Jonah necessarily included merciful opportunity for Avoiding destruction, Nahum provides no such grace. So you might be asking yourself about this and saying, how did this happen? How does a nation go from what we saw in Jonah, where they repented, to going to this point where God is saying, I will destroy them? Well, we learn that from this, that revival is certainly not multi generational. Every single church and every single family is one generation away from apostasy. Consider the people of Israel when they went into the promised land. You remember what happened during the time of Joshua and the great mighty conquest. We see the untrained, unprepared army of Israel winning battle after battle. Why? Because the Lord fought on their behalf. God led the people in. God protected them. God did mighty things in their midst. But after the book of Joshua comes to a close, we reach the book that you are currently studying here at North Shore, the book of Judges. And just a couple of weeks ago, you heard from Judges chapter 2, verse 10, that transition to the next generation. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Now, here's why I think that's important. Some theologians look back at Nineveh and say, well, they said they were sorry to God, but their hearts never really changed. I don't think that's true because God seemed to think there was something that genuinely happened, therefore he relented. But they say that because they say, how is it possible that 120 years later, this book is then written? Parents, this should set as a heavy hand on your shoulder to remind you, you can't save your children, but you can consistently and faithfully point them to the one who can save them. So I encourage you to do so. And I encourage you to imitate your pastor in this way. I encourage you to teach your children in the way that he taught his children the word of God. Three of his four children are here tonight. If you want to know how he parented them and pointed them to the Lord, they would happily share that with you. He was not a perfect father, sharing the gospel perfectly with them, but better than anyone I have ever seen. And I would also ask that you would learn from another aspect of his training of the next generation. There are many things that Ed has repeated to me over the years. Uh, sometimes he will tell the same story once or twice, or he will say the same thing once in a while. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, the thing he has said more than anything is, the gospel is of first importance. The thing he has said the second most is, my favorite time of every week is teaching the children in my Tuesday class. If your kids are not in that class, please make sure they can get there. And I encourage you at home to imitate what he does in ensuring that they know the word of God and know the gospel. So now, with all of these things understood about the context, let's now move to the passage laid before us. Here's how we're going to proceed tonight. Point number one, God punishes the guilty. And point number two, God vindicates the innocent. Now, it should be noted that both of our points this morning are really just different expressions of the same reality, that God is just. When I say that God is just, I first mean that everything the Lord does for us or against us is completely justified. He does not have to answer to anyone for his actions. But let's just say for sake of argument, he did let's just say that God really was at some point put on trial, he would be able to show how every single course of action that he has ever taken is in absolute full alignment with what is good and what is equitable. God is good and all of his actions are carried out in alignment with his perfect character. And that is why Nahum starts the book by extolling the perfect nature and character of God before diving into the really dark stuff about the devastation that's going to be poured out on these Assyrians. So although we won't carefully scrutinize every word of this book, I do want you to grasp these two main points. They are two sides of the same coin of God's justice. First, we examine that God punishes the guilty. Now, the Assyrian Empire, they were wicked. They were horrible. They were the worst, and they were known for extreme and grotesque forms of violence and torture. They would intentionally advertise their savagery so that they might strike fear into the hearts of their enemies. They were famous for flaying the skin off of their victims and then they would drape them outside of the city walls like flags. And then they would build pyramids in the city squares of the severed heads of their foes. And I'm not even going to begin to speak of the atrocities that history records regarding their activities towards women and children. It was actually difficult for me as I was preparing to find a quote from an Assyrian leader that was usable in a sermon because most of their cruelty included such extreme acts of sexual violence. However, there is one example from a stone carving from the words of the Assyrian king Sennacherib that I will choose to place here. He says, I cut their throats like lambs. I cut off their precious lives as one cuts a string. Like the many waters of a storm, I made the contents of their gullets and entrails run down upon the wide earth. My prancing steeds, harnessed for my riding, plunged into the streams of their blood as into a river. The wheels of my war chariot, which brings them low, were bespattered with blood and human waste. With the bodies of their warriors, I filled the plain like grass. Happy 30 years, Ed. Consider that this is almost identical in some ways to how God describes their guilt at the beginning of chapter three. He says, "'Woe to the bloody city, "'all full of lies and plunder, "'no end to the prey, "'the crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, "'galloping horse and bounding chariot, "'horsemen charging, flashing sword, "'glittering spear, "'hosts of slain, "'heaps of corpses, "'dead bodies without end. "'They stumble, over the bodies. Get the picture. These people are making their way through the fields on their horses, and they can't even keep their horses upright because they are tripping over all of the corpses. This is God's simple description of their vast atrocities. Each and every life that laid there on that plain was snuffed out by the cruel warlords, but they were each one a life created in the image of God. Every last one of those who were chased down and tortured was a being who was made an image bearer of God, worthy of human life. What is it to murder? It is to put yourself in God's position and say, I will decide when your life ends. It is my choice when you will enter into eternity. It is a great form of idolatry to commit such an act. The Assyrians, however, they treated their enemies worse than cockroaches or ants to be crushed and tormented for pleasure. On November 20th, 1945, the International Body began to uh, an 11-month set of trials that has now come to be known as the Nuremberg Trials. And these trials paraded dozens of war criminals to stand and testify of their crimes against humanity that took place during World War II. And the indecency of their actions was only surpassed by the disturbing fact that many of these culprits defended their barbarism. The final act resulted in 10 men that were hanged for their crimes. 10 men. According to the Holocaust Encyclopedia, it is estimated that more than 18 million people were unjustifiably killed by the Nazi military. And of those 18 million, more than 11 million were not military, but civilians. And over 1.8 million of those were documented murders of children under the age of 14. Now, what if the Nuremberg trials concluded with the judge saying, you know what, look, I, I realize that you guys made some mistakes. You took a wrong turn here or there in your life. But you know what, let's just give you another shot. You're free to go. Is that justice? Or what if the judge were to say, look, I, really, we're all just products of evolution and Survival of the fittest really is the mantra of Darwin. So actually you kind of did the world a favor by eliminating all those people who would not rise up and defend themselves. Is that justice? No. Or what if the judge were to have said, who's really to say if what's right and wrong? I mean, we don't have a real standard to go by here. So although what you did kind of makes me feel icky, uh, I can't actually say that what you did was immoral. So you're free to go. Is that justice? To all three of these, we say, of course not. But if you look at any court in the world right now, these are the three main ways in which they find themselves answering unjustly. The only proper conclusion that could have been reached at those trials was that they were guilty and that they had to have severe consequences for the violence they displayed. God is a just judge. God will never let the guilty go unpunished. There is no sin that will go unpaid. Every single offense that has ever been made against God will ultimately receive absolute retribution. Consider a few of the ways that God describes the judgment that will come against the Assyrians. Nahum chapter 3 verses 4 and 5, he writes, "Behold, I am against you," declares the Lord of hosts. Man, if you don't want to hear one thing from God, you don't want to hear those words. And he continues, I will lift up your skirts over your face and I will make the nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. Many years ago, we had a sermon class here at the church where Ed was teaching some guys how to preach. And one of the things he said was, never illustrate your sermons with uh, fecal matter. It's okay if God does it, right? I mean, he... Consider the fact that God says, "Look, I'm going to shame you so much that I am going to throw waste at you, and I'm going to shame you by making you appear naked to everyone and making them look at you and laugh." This depiction of raw, throwing raw sewage all over them is a reference to how this nation is never going to be honored or respected or remembered favorably, favorably by anyone in the future. Everyone who ever thinks of them will think of them with contempt. I love history. I love to study history and. I I really enjoy, I I read about it. I listen to podcasts about it. I I look at it from all different angles and I really enjoy studying, especially this period of history. And one interesting thing that I have found is that nobody likes the Assyrians. Nobody thinks that they're the heroes. God speaks of their ultimate destruction and he says, everyone's gonna be happy about this. If you go back through and you, you read any historian, they will find ways of taking even the most depraved cultures and finding things to praise about them. You find heroes in the Roman Empire. They will take people like Nero and write favorably about him. But they will never do that about Assyria. The Lord says in chapter 2, verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions, meaning their children. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Hold on to that little voice about their messengers no longer being heard. We'll come back to that in a little while. God took away their power. He took away their possessions. He took away their prestige. All of the things that they were pursuing ultimately produced nothing. Everything they thought they had gained was lost because of their sin. And because God always punishes the guilty. Because God is a just God. Point number two, God always vindicates the innocent. The idea of God's vindication is sprinkled everywhere throughout the Bible. I love that four of the Psalms begin with this plea for God's vindication saying, Vindicate me, O Lord. Consider Psalm 135 verse 14 says, For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. There is a reason why the Lord can say, Blessed are the persecuted. It doesn't appear that way from this side of eternity. But the Lord will make right every wrong that has ever been experienced in this life. He is going to correct the treatment of his people in and for eternity. But one part of vindication is the judgment of the wicked. Earlier, as I was speaking of the Nuremberg trials, did you consider how a surviving victim would have felt if those men were pardoned? Imagine a woman who had experienced three or four years in a concentration camp, experiencing every dehumanizing trauma imaginable. Imagine her response when she was told, Your captors have been set free. Your persecutors are now free to go. They will not be judged. Imagine the personal outrage she would feel. She would have every right to doubt the judgment of that judge. She would have every right to question his credibility and his morality. Consider how this little book of Nahum ends. Nahum chapter three, verse nineteen. He speaks of the Assyrians, There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. And that term there literally means it's fatal. All who hear the news of you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? God is essentially declaring that every nation and tribe in the vicinity of the Assyrians, that they had all experienced their cruelty. And nobody was sad when they heard this news. In fact, it says everyone's going to rejoice. They're going to celebrate when they learn that the Assyrians are finally destroyed. In chapter two, verse one, the Lord explains his purpose in the destruction of Nineveh. He says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. God was bringing about a bitter end to Assyria because they had attacked his children. Now I'm, I'm a pretty easygoing person. Many of you know me. I'm, I'm pretty chill most of the time. Not many things rustle my feathers, but if someone were to a, attack my children or try to kidnap them, there would be a part of me that would come out that you have never seen before in your life, like a, a bear on fire. I would, I would be destructive in every way to try and protect my children from an enemy. And God says, you have come after my children, and I am going to respond with great judgment. Which brings us to a very important theological question here. Theology is always very practical, the question is, which side of that fence are you on? Because let's face it, most of us in this room, we're, we're not Assyrians, as far as I know. And we're not from Israel or Judah, and we're certainly not living under the old covenant. So where do we fall in this whole scenario? Which side are we on? Are, are we the kind of people that God's going to judge or the ones that he's going to defend? Well, let me start with some bad news. One of the key truths that you're going to pick up if you read Nahum carefully is that all of the evil things that the Assyrians did to people, God took them personally. And the Assyrians did not know God, they did not trust God, they did not follow God, they did not claim him as their God, yet all sin, every last sin, is ultimately and primarily a sin against God. And this means that every single time that you have lied, or cheated, or gossiped, or rebelled, or stolen, or lusted, or complained, God is saying, you're just like them. You're Trading me in this way. That activity that you are doing, that sinful action, you might be hurting other people, but primarily you are sinning against me, says the Lord. Every single sin is a way that you fall short of the glory of God. Every time that you sin, you are punching the clock to earn your wages of death. And every time that you sin, you are imagining that you are God and that God is not. So here's the problem you are guilty. And the promise is that he will by no means clear the guilty. This puts every one of us in a terrible predicament. So the question is, how can God, who will not clear the guilty, still love us and avoid punishing us? Well, in order to answer that question, we first need to consider the other side of the coin of God's perfect justice, that God will also always vindicate the innocent. As we've already established, there are no innocent people, not in this room, not in any room. But here Paul describes all of us he, he speaks this of us in Romans chapter three. He says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood in their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace. They have not known. And he concludes, there is no fear of God before their eyes. In this passage, Paul was creating a patchwork quilt from Old Testament passages to show that we are absolutely unworthy of God. You and I are just as worthy of hell as these Assyrians. Our sins might be different than theirs, but they are just as offensive because God is holy. And that's bad news. But here's good news. Consider the most famous verse in the book of Nahum, chapter 1, verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Well, what is this verse about? Well, it's about the destruction of the Assyrians, of course. It's about the end of the enemy. Imagine that day when the people heard someone coming over the hill and screaming joyfully Listen, everyone, hear me. The Assyrians have been conquered. We are free. They're gone. Run, come see Jerusalem. The Seekers, 1963. (laughs) Imagine the celebration that would ensue as they finally experience the freedom from danger, freedom from oppression. The fear is gone. There's no more watching over the shoulder. There's no more raiding party coming. Peace has come. When studying the minor prophets, the name of the prophet is usually significant when it comes to understanding the contents of the book. Nahum simply means comfort. This message, this dark message, I think the most dark message of all the minor prophets, is designed to be comforting to the people of God. Nahum is about the arrival of peace by way of removing the enemy. Now, you likely know that this verse is quoted by Paul in Romans chapter 10. He says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written in Nahum one fifteen, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news! But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, "Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us?" So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Now this quote is really instructive for us because it helps us to understand how to read the book of Nahum. Is Paul telling us to inform everyone that the Assyrians have been defeated? I mean, let's go evangelizing, Ed. Let's take the church door to door. Hey, guess what? The Assyrians are gone. Obviously not. Notice that he parallels here this good news with the word gospel and the phrase, the word of Christ in verse 16 and 17. Paul understood that Nahum was about Jesus. The surface message was that God would defeat the Assyrians. Yes, but there's a deeper message that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would defeat the greater enemy of God's people. There is one person who has never sinned. There is one innocent person, Jesus alone. Everyone else is in the guilty bucket. So now we step forward out of Nahum and into the gospel because that is the place where grace and justice meet. So it's important to note that God does not describe himself as fair. If God was fair, then we're all going to be in hell. The cross is a just moment, but it is not a fair moment. For it is there that the innocent Son of God was crushed for our sins and bruised for our iniquities. And the punishment that God the Father laid on him brought us peace, divine self-satisfaction by way of divine self-substitution. That's not fair, but it is just. Jesus bore on himself the sins of many, and when he died on the cross, he died because the sins of his people were on him. Romans 3.26 says that this act of propitiation occurred, quote, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Do you see the point? The point is that through the cross, Jesus makes people who were in the category of guilty move into the category of innocent. That's the way God can be both the just and the justifier. He punishes sin and he justifies his people. The enemy is defeated. Amen. Amen. You don't have to look over your shoulder anymore. Amen just like the Assyrian messenger has been cut off never again to proclaim your doom, so there is now no one that could ever separate you from his love or condemn you. Colossians chapter two, verses 13 through 14 puts it like this. And you who were dead in the trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, but he did something with it nailing it to the cross. God always punishes the guilty, and God always vindicates the innocent. At the cross, Jesus took our guilt so that he might make us innocent. That is good news. That is the gospel. And how beautiful are the feet of those who preach this good news. So now I realize that I've gone long, Ed. We could we could uh, we could do a few more things uh, to speak of your uh, ministry here. and I, I could be here for another hour, but if you want me to speak about you for an hour, you have to serve another five years. Um, but before I pray, I do want to give a couple of quick words of instruction. Uh, first of all, there will be no Q&A tonight, and there wouldn't have been anyway because I preached too long. But also, Ed, uh, when I start praying, I know that normally you pop up here. We'll just stay there for tonight. Keith's going to come afterwards. And church, you need to know that tonight there is going to be an offering taken, but not the normal way. Uh, there is going to be an offering tonight to help the students of the church to make their way to Georgia so they can do a mission trip down to Parker's Church. And if you would like to give to that, you can do so either online or there will be an offering plate up here on the table where you can give. But tonight we will not be passing the offering plates. And so in just a few moments, I'm, after I finish praying, um, Keith is going to come forward and he'll take over for the rest of the evening. Let me pray. <laughs> Father God, I am so grateful. I am so thankful for your word. Lord, it is such a good message. That good news that is being proclaimed, that yes, you have defeated our enemy. You have defeated our sin at the cross. And God, I thank you. I thank you that Jesus punished, uh, that the Father punished Jesus in my place. God, thank you for that. I thank you for every person here who has trusted in Christ and believed the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would be active in presenting that good news to others. And I pray also, Lord, that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, who is still guilty, Lord, I pray that they would find this good news to be good news, and they would trust it and follow Jesus Christ and be saved. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.